Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where our purpose is to learn more about how effective charities and individuals achieve social change or social impact. I'm your host, Alex Blake, and I'm joined today by Paul Knott, a consultant helping charities to improve staff recruitment and retention. For the last year almost, I think it's been, Paul's been offering consultancy to organisations to improve their internal systems to both attract new staff and, as importantly, to retain the good people they already have. Paul's also a coach helping individuals and teams to develop their careers, create their own definitions of success and plan achievable steps to make them happen. Prior to this, Paul's been a recruitment consultant specialising in fundraising, marketing and senior roles in the sector for the last 16 years. And he's also been a fundraiser, a charity founder and a trustee. And Paul, I know for years you've been the kind of number one recruiter that I've recommended to people. And I think that's that's because you've truly been of the sector. You've been there, you've done the fundraising, you've started a charity, you've been on boards, you've done tons of mentoring and coaching and things for people. So you really know your stuff and have really been able to support people in that recruitment process. And I'm really pleased that you finally bit in the bullet and set up your own consultancy to help organizations from the inside and do that kind of more in-depth work. So, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Alex. Great to see you again. So let's start off with just a couple of little quick, easy questions, and then we'll dig into a bit more detail about the current jobs market for the sector and the situation and and what you've been doing. So first up, what charity did you give your most recent donation to and why? Most recent was a direct debit set up to Young Minds. So I did uh, a piece of consultancy with Young Minds at the tail end of last year and the beginning of this. And as is so often the case when you work directly with an organisation, you see the need even more apparently than you might have done otherwise but I think particularly looking at what your minds do I mean they, they're one of the organizations that's been doing pretty well over the last couple of years but that's only because the need has become so starkly apparent and I suppose from my point of view it's it's been quite easy over the years because as a recruiter you do really get to see the warts and all side of the sector so as much as I found many organizations who I've wanted and have given to over the years, you also see a lot that it really makes you question whether you want to. So my, Mm. my friends will always come to me and say, should I be giving to this one or not? Because it's, it's hard, you know, if you've seen that there's a terrible culture there or, or they can't hang on stuff or those kind of things, it's hard to feel justified in, in giving, even if the cause is very good, but, but young minds, working with them it was a really nice combination of seeing that the need is absolutely there they've run really really well so the money is spent well but they're willing to invest in staff as well hence they've grown a lot over the last few years and seeing it talking to I engaged a lot through COVID with the the head teacher at my kids school I mean they're in sort of infant and junior school but the messaging as with so many other people in the teaching profession and working with anyone working with young people is the need for mental health support has never been larger. And obviously we all know that the support from maybe the places that should be giving the, the most support to those professions just isn't coming down the line. So organisations like Young Minds who can both support the young people themselves, but also support the people who are working with young people has never been more necessary. So they, I happily, give to them every month communications with them are unsurprisingly great in terms of the the emails I get back from them but it is it's that's definitely my most recent because I know it is 
essential and the more the more money even though they're doing well they still need a heck of a lot more and it was <laughs> so i'm segueing from this into the sort of almost the recruitment and retention piece in that it was really significant working with the staff there that working with the fundraising team particularly that they were in a situation where they absolutely saw that they'd done incredibly well and smashed targets and everything else but were all so driven by the fact that they knew that even though they'd smashed their targets, the need was still much larger than that, that it did give them that motivation. I'll probably come later to talking about sort of keeping your, your staff members connected to the cause, but they were all aware of that. It gave them really great motivation. And as an outsider looking in, it gave me, it made it an absolute sort of no question as to whether I'd end up being a, a regular giver to them. Yeah, I think I've, I've seen some of the young minds kind of, um, public facing communications and they, they certainly look really good they have really good clear messaging and like you say seem to be doing well it reminds me of an article that i saw that was talking about do they still need our money as the question and it was in relation to some of those big philanthropic gifts and with Mackenzie scott making some huge gifts in the u.s and so, some of that sort of thing and it was saying you know it's the wrong question the question is if i give to them can they have more impact can have a greater impact are they you know are they going to make good use of the money it's irrelevant whether their fundraising is already successful i'll stick the link in the episode notes and share it with you as by a guy called kevin Starr, i think it is of the milago foundation in the us it always seems to make a lot of sense stumbled across him on twitter i think it was in the stanford social innovation review which tends to have some quite good stuff around philanthropy and charity but us focused but still relevant Okay, so we digress a little bit. You mentioned something in there about some of the kind of waltz and all side of things. We might come back to that in a little bit, I think. But let's get a little bit of context from you, first of all. So what was it that made you want to work in or with the charity sector in the first place? I didn't really realise originally, like I think so many people, that the charity sector was an employer. I think like most when I was younger, I thought, you know, I saw volunteering as a, as a way of supporting, but didn't necessarily realise there was a a whole professional sort of structure to it. So my route into the sector was running a charity shop for Cancer Research Campaign as was then, and that purely came about. I'd left education, looking around for a job and saw there was a shop manager position for one of the charity shops that I shopped in a lot and felt that I knew them fairly well because I'd used them a lot. And it was the one in my hometown that really wasn't an attractive one to go in it just wasn't very popular there was lots of things you could see that were easily wrong with it so although I had very little shop experience I sort of applied for it and got an interview and took the risk of saying in the interview your shop is awful and really needs sorting out and luckily the two managers who were interviewing me both agreed so gave me the role so I took over managing a, a team of very typical demographic of charity shop volunteers and within that I, lo I loved it and in some ways it was one of my favorite jobs because you were talking to people all day long and as well as managing the shop sort of working on the till which I love but did a few fundraising events within the shop one of which was with the Reese Witherspoon film Legally Blonde which was showing at the local cinema which happened to coincide with <laughs> the cancer research campaign's pink month and we had these pink beanbag dogs to sell. So I spoke to the local cinema manager, asked if we could do something because Legally Blonde is all about, you know, she wears all pink. So did a fundraising event in the foyer of the cinema and completely got the fundraising bug. 
And so from that, one of my sort of my regional manager moved elsewhere into a fundraising role and asked me if I wanted to go with her into a team and just absolutely loved fundraising and then just grabbed it with both hands really. So then moved across different income streams, across sort of generalist roles into specializing major donors and legacies. And yeah, absolutely adored it. But then as you alluded to before, I moved into recruitment mainly because so many of the recruiters I worked with when I was a fundraiser didn't have that sector experience and I felt it was often missing. So I thought maybe there was an opportunity to take the skills I had from fundraising and go and do recruitment ethically where you're thinking about the individuals and what jobs are actually right for them and similarly for the organisations, what people will be right for their roles and help them think differently about who they recruit. I'm going to ask you a bit more about the recruitment and retention and, and so on. But before we come to that, I wanted to ask, because I know you're obviously knowledgeable in the wider kind of context of learning and development and so on. Now you do a lot of coaching. Are there particular resources that you would recommend to people or that you find helpful yourself? So coaching may well be one of them, but also any particular training or books, websites, subscriptions, what, what are the kind of things that you use or that you signpost people to? Sure. Well, I'm maybe going to go a bit different to this because there are various books that I found useful, but I think probably in terms of what I find most useful and recommend to people the most is, it seems obvious in a way, but simply people. And I find a lot of people I I coach and I I work within with clients I work with, some people still aren't, aren't engaging as much as they might. And I think one of the beautiful things about this sector is that people are willing to support one another. So if you are in a role and you're struggling, there's nothing to stop you targeting somebody else in a similar organization of a similar level and just getting in touch with them and asking for some advice. And in nine times out of 10, people are more than happy to do that. And I've heard of lots of people doing that, even when technically the person they're speaking to is from a direct, what is on paper, a competitor organization. So it's about engaging like that and not just limiting yourself to thinking about people who are directly as I say, doing the same role as you, although that's a part of it, but actually spreading your net wider and engaging with people who are maybe doing different roles that you might have an interest in. Because if they've got useful information for you and useful advice, you'll likely have the same for them. And again, the other thing I think a lot of people don't think about in this sector is in the charity sector, we have something absolutely unique on that score that we can do. And that is contact anybody in the commercial sector and ask them for advice. And whereas you couldn't do that if you're in the commercial sector, because you work in a charity, you can get in touch with anybody of any level in any company and just say, I work in the charity sector. This is the sort of thing I work on. I'd love to just have half an hour of your time to ask you a few questions over the phone. People love it. The worst that can happen is they ignore you. But often people love it because a lot of people who don't work in the charity sector either see a means of supporting as either being a monthly donation or getting sponsored to do an event or perhaps their company giving huge amounts of, of cash or partnership in some way, they often don't realise that their skills and their knowledge can help a charity by giving that advice. So people very often love it and it's a perfect sort of thing for them to do because it's, it's micro-volunteering. They can give to an organisation by giving their expertise from the comfort of their desk or their home in half hour or hour chunks here and there at times that are convenient for them and as long as you're 
sensible and think have your fundraising marketing hat on when you're doing it and make sure you reflect back to them how much their advice has helped you and had an impact on the organization you can keep those relationships going for years and it doesn't have to be just one person you can do that with as many people as you want to and just get all of this great information from outside and i think that's as i say although i think the books and various other modes of information are massively useful not forgetting to go after those very bespoke forms almost when you're going to be able to actually ask a direct question about exactly what your issue is at the time and likely get a helpful answer back or as I say worst case scenario get ignored or get rubbish answer you don't have to listen to but more often than not it'll be useful so just make use of those of those connections it can only be a positive thing yeah it's a really interesting tip I know when I was working in charities I'd, I'd definitely do that within the charity sector Sometimes there were existing networks. Sometimes I just reached out to people. Sometimes it was formal mentoring, but it never, never, never really occurred to me to reach out to people in the commercial sector and ask for their advice. How do you advise that people go about doing that? Is it that you look at your own personal networks and see who you might have kind of friends and family that might make sense, or is it kind of going on LinkedIn? Because you know, if you want marketing advice, then there's thousands of people out there that work in marketing for any number of companies and some of them are really good and some of them are completely rubbish and just because you know they work in commercial sector doesn't mean that they're going to have any any insight or any more knowledge than you have so how how do people go about choosing someone to approach in the first place mm, yeah you're absolutely right commercial sector doesn't mean anything anything in itself so linkedin is certainly a good avenue to go down but i think it's about picking people by either taking marketing as, a, as an example, try and engage with some either podcast specific to marketing or, or look on YouTube for any talks that have been done. So find those people that you can sort of, you maybe see something they've done publicly facing or, or an article they've written that you like and kind of shows them as having the kind of skills you're looking for, then target them specifically on the back of that. So rather than just saying, hey, I, I'm a person, I need anyone with your kind of experience, you're able to specifically go to them, like you would to, to a donor, if you're trying to generate a relationship with the donor, go to them specifically with why you've gone to them and what you want out of it. And so that's going to the people sort of cold that you don't know, going to people you do know or the contacts of people you do know absolutely works as well. I think you've just got to, you've got to make it idiot proof, I guess, for want of a better word, in that if you go to your, if you send an email out to your address book say and just say hey everyone i'm a marketer in the charity sector i need someone who's really good in marketing in the commercial sector you're likely not going to get anything whereas if you lay out very clearly what you do because don't assume that even your closest friends really know what you do because if you quiz them on it you'll probably be just disappointed i think we all probably would <laughs> do something very brief of saying this is my role this is what it this is what my role actually does in an organization that achieves x y and z and just do a little praise of what your charity achieves or who the beneficiary group are and then say what i'm looking for and you need to be absolutely clear about what you're asking for so somebody i could speak to and have a half hour phone conversation with at a time convenient to them i need someone who has marketing knowledge specifically in direct marketing to individuals consumer marketing so lay out a couple of bullet points and then if you can give an idea of what those job titles might be that somebody would have. Because I think unless you make it absolutely clear so somebody can just scan your, your email and say, well, hey, I've, I've got a friend who's got that job title, maybe they're right. 
they'll probably look at it and if they think oh i'm not sure what that means they'll just forget about it whereas if you're very specific then they're much more likely to pass it on or just keep your ears pricked up when you're talking to friends you're close to and they're talking about other contacts they have and like all of us who have been a fundraiser i think you can never quite switch off and if you're speaking to some, one of your friends down the pub or something and they mention they know somebody who runs their own huge company even if you're not a fundraiser anymore your ears can't help pricking up saying oh i wonder what their csr policy is oh i wonder <laughs> i wonder how i could get in touch with them and it's a similar thing just start to tune into who your contacts know and just ask because as i say with all of these things the worst case scenario is you get ignored and if you worked in a charity doing any kind of role, you're probably used to getting ignored every now and again, whether it's making an ask or, to, or telling people about your cause. So just just keep trying. But but to quickly answer your question, yes, be specific about you go after. Don't just email everybody with marketing in their title. Yeah, and I mean that thing of worst I can say is no. It's like with making any request, you have to ask more than one person, don't you? Like you might get yeah. a yes from the first person, but you might not. You don't give up at that point. You ask 10 people and that guarantees you pretty much someone's going to say yes out of those 10. Whereas you ask one person, they say no. And you're like, oh, I tried that. Didn't work. You know, like someone that places an advert for, like, you know, yeah. one week. It doesn't work. Oh, I've tried advertising. Doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, and it's also, I think, about thinking about what one mistake I made on this score in the past. When I founded my own charity, I was really looking for some advice from sort of high-end corporates about how to target other potential corporate partners a friend said he actually had a contact who was a dot-com multi-millionaire who is now ceo for an enormous lifestyle company who he knew fairly well i let him know it'd be really useful just to be able to have a chat with that person and sent my friend an email detailing exactly what the charity did going into all of this detail about what the organization did what the information i needed was it was quite a long email. Forgot about it. Weeks later, I was fairly, fairly hungover on a Saturday morning making breakfast. Got a phone call about half eight from my friend saying, Hi, Paul, I've got him on the phone for you. We happen, we're overseas, we're together, time difference, I know, but I've got him. He's got half an hour. Do you want to speak to him? So I sort of tried to pull my head into one, one piece and said, Yes, of course, I'd love to speak to him. He came on the phone. I said, Right, so, you know, you, I sent you the email. What did you think? And he said, well, of course I didn't read your email. I'm incredibly busy. I'm on the board of all these companies. I run this enormous company. Everybody knows if they send me more than two lines, I don't read it. So tell me, he said, you've got a two minute pitch. Pitch me what you are, what you need. I did that in two minutes. He then gave me about 27 and a half minutes of some of the most useful information I've ever been given. And then finished by saying, if you need my help again, you either send me a one line email or you text me saying, I need to talk and I'll get back to you when I can. And it just really brought home to me that I've been very used to doing long form funding applications, dealing with maybe CSR teams whose job it is to look at information you're sending them over and wanted to get as much information in as possible. Whereas to him, who was an exceptionally busy, high powered exec, he that just wasn't what worked for him and it made me really change things after that in terms of thinking about what approach will work for that individual with their needs and I've had a lot more success doing it since yeah it is uh it is difficult because I'm a detail person so I yeah. always want to kind of give the detail yeah. <laughs> rather than but 
then people don't read it. So recruitment and retention's obviously a huge topic at the moment across all sectors, really. Yeah. And this is your area of expertise. So it'd be great to hear from you. What What is the problem? What's the challenge facing the charity sector specifically around both recruitment and retention? Um, and take that in whatever direction you like, I suppose, because I, I suppose I'm, I'm interested in what is it that's specific to our sector as opposed to the kind of macro economic stuff that's going on everywhere and then what what are some of yeah. the kind of key challenges you think and, and maybe that can lead us into some of the work you've been doing at the moment and, and what charities can do to, to give themselves the best chance of retaining the good people and, and getting more good people on board sure yeah i mean the recruitment side of things it's it's not one thing for our sector i've certainly never seen it like it is now i mean there's there's been times we've been better or worse but now is is just yeah i mean 16 years i've never seen anything like it i mean it's a number of reasons it's there's been difficulty in recruitment bubbling along for the last couple of years and certainly well pre-covid which i think partly comes down to uncertainty in that it was always noticeable when recruiting that if there was any sort of cultural political uncertainty coming up people would stop moving roles so much. So whenever there was an election coming up, because I think people wanted to wait and see how statutory funding and those sorts of things would change, people tend to stay put. And if they were thinking of looking for work, they might decide to stay put for at least until after the election to see, see what came of it. Having Brexit and then followed by COVID has just made that situation sort of writ large. So you've got a lot of people who are sticking in their jobs. And I think it's probably more apparent in those roles that you see that are very directly affected by those things. So say if you look at statutory and trust fundraisers, I think tend to stay put and broadly across other roles because people just don't want to move to a new role and then be last in first out if that organization does get into problems. So that sort of stopped so much sort of churn in the sector in a way that, that will always impact recruitment. There are a lot of salaries across the sector that have dropped to sort of recession at time levels even for the last couple of years i think it's partly the fact that and is that sorry yeah, sure. to interrupt but is that salaries have actually dropped so not just when you take inflation into consideration but they're, they're actually recruiting on a lower salary than they previously had done for the same role yes yeah there are certainly people who are recruiting well they might be recruiting for the same salary for the same job title but then when you look at the responsibilities it will have pulled in right. other parts maybe if the team has shrunk mm. and there's certainly i think that's probably affected the roles like events and community more than anything because they're always generally underpaid compared to other roles because there's more competition for them because that's where people from outside sector often come in because that's the visible part of fundraising mm. So salaries, salary side of things is important. Then when you come on to actually recruitment and attracting people into your role, there is still a lot of what I would see as old school style recruitment, which is nothing being changed from how they've done it for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that is often very apparent in things like the criteria they're putting in for what they need from the role. So the very obvious things like asking for a degree when... Mm -hmm the role definitely doesn't need anybody with a degree and asking for a certain number of years experience. 
and it's so frustrating that that's still the case because there is so much research that has shown that if you have a long lot of essential criteria then middle class white men are far more likely to apply for a role that they don't meet all those criteria for other demographics are less likely to because they i believe correctly is what people should think really if something's listed as an essential criteria and you don't meet it you would assume that means you shouldn't apply for the role but having been a recruiter i've seen time and time again every time i had a client come to me with a job spec that had a list of 10 or 15 criteria listed as essential i would normally pick those apart with them and basically say to them if you had somebody who's perfect in the first criteria you've listed which is normally the most important do you really care if they've got a degree? And they would always say, of course I don't. Do you really care if they've only got a year's experience rather than three? Of course I don't. Do you really care if they've got charity experience or whether they've, they've got transferable experience from elsewhere? Of course I don't. So you would start with 15 essential criteria and often whittle it down to three, four, five maybe. But still you're seeing all these jobs being advertised with huge numbers, <laughs> with huge numbers of essential criteria. And that will stop people even looking at them just to go back to the salaries actually i think what's often missed by charities and why this is more of a charity specific issue and this is particularly true when trustees have a lot of influence in setting salaries and pushing back on people trying to up salaries and i'll come back to trustees later as well is there's still this feeling that if you're a good enough cause people will want to come and work for you regardless of salary or they'll be willing to take a lower salary but what people are missing now is, even if that were true, and I don't think it's ever been true really, because yes, you might be an amazing cause, but we all know there's plenty of amazing causes in the sector, that the way people are searching for jobs now isn't picking up a copy of Third Sector or The Guardian and flicking through the jobs pages, where you would see all the jobs that are in there, because they'd be right in front of you on the page. Because everyone's searching for jobs online now, the way people are searching is to put in various fields, including area, specialism, and significantly salary by sliding scale, which you often can set exactly yourself. So you could be the person's dream charity that is just down the road from them. But if they put a search in for 25 to 35 and you're paying 24,999, then they're never going to see your role, however tempting it might be to them. So you need to work out what your salaries need to be to attract someone. And just on that one, it's always worth putting them into the next round number. So if you have got something which you often see of 29,995, add six pounds to it, and you might see a whole new tranche of people ridiculously. But that, that does happen so much. And you, and you see these salaries being set by in different ways some charities will set it by looking at sort of research that's done on organizations across the sector and you'll get a whole report of sort of different role titles uh, a mean a median and, and and maximum salary and they'll often i find do something in between sort of the minimum and the, and the median but those those kind of surveys miss out telling you a lot of information as does one of the other ways that charities do it in which they will just look at what's being advertised at the time of that particular role so they'll log into charity jobs say put in corporate fundraising executive 
see what everyone else is advertising corporate fundraising executive as and set their salary somewhere in the middle of that. But both of those things miss out on telling you something enormously important. If you're just looking at the adverts, all that tells you is there's adverts out there. It doesn't tell you whether they're successfully recruiting anyone or whether they stick to those salaries when they do. And even if they are recruiting and with that, that survey information about sort of the, the one with the, the salary ranges, none of those things tell you if the people in those roles are actually successful in their role or stay for very long. So although I think that you can use those tools as one part of looking at salaries, one of the most important ones, although in some ways anyone who's process-based hates this because it's quite a soft way of looking at it in a way, is to phone up your, if you're a, a manager or a, a, a head of, phone up your opposite number at some similar organisations in a similar geographical area and actually engage with them and talk to them about what they're paying their staff in that particular role who are good. And what are they paying to get somebody good who stays? And it will often give you a much more rounded idea of what those salaries are because it's all in a good an organisation saying, well, we've benchmarked and looked at other adverts, so that's what we're advertising at. If they're then getting no applicants to their role and wondering why. Yeah, yeah. It seems to make sense at first, doesn't it? But when you think about it, how many people have placed that advert, got no applicants and then had to pull it and then maybe they've gone to an agency who said, we'll find you some people, maybe you need to put the salary up, or maybe it's negotiated, it, it ends up being significantly more than it was to start with. Absolutely. And and it's still on the advert front, roles still aren't being sold that well. And part of the reason I've ended up doing what, what I'm doing now, supporting organisations to be better at doing their own recruitment, is quite often, and I think recruiters are fantastically useful sometimes but not all the time and I, I remember getting frustrated when sometimes you'd be recruiting for an organization alongside them doing their own recruitment and even though we were advertising on the same portals whether it's charity job third sector guardian whatever the charity had the same role on there at the same time but I was getting more of the candidate supply to my advert purely because we'd made the advert a bit more interesting and a bit more compelling whereas the organization had made the advert quite dry quite factual and again quite old school a lot of the recruitment that's done is still thinking in terms of probably going back to almost the 70s and 80s of almost making it slightly difficult to apply almost slightly off-putting with the thought that well if we make it slightly difficult that means only the people who are really interested will apply and it's just not that way anymore all it means is that the really good people who you want, who have more options, who their employers are looking after more than anyone else and know they can be choosy, are just not going to even think of applying for yours in the first place. So that's, that goes for having an advert that doesn't sell the role and doesn't tell, tell the person anything about what the, what the good points of the role and the organisation are, and through to things like having a very arduous application form to fill in which you still see a lot, but it's one of the key ways you can stop anybody applying for your role because other roles out there will just need a CV or a CV and supporting statement, which is my sort of favoured combination, I guess. But putting huge application forms on there will massively reduce your numbers of applicants. And it definitely won't mean that it's only the good ones who are applying, often quite the opposite. Yeah, I don't know if this is a good point to ask us, feel free to come back to it. But 
I know when we spoke recently, you mentioned that the charity sector maybe doesn't have the same draw that it once had for thinking about, say, graduates or people, you know, thinking about wanting a career where they make a difference in the world, where they have that social impact. Yeah. Maybe it's that there are just more options. There's negative media coverage around the charity sector. There are technology companies that are claim to be all about improving the world and things like that. What are your thoughts on on that side of things? Is that another challenge for the sector? And what are your what are some of your thoughts on that? Definitely and and affects the junior roles the most in that yeah, so many other people recently when I talked to people who would traditionally have been of a type which would be looking for their first job in the in the charity sector, quite often when I speak to those people, so education leavers, that that sort of thing those people who would have often talked about coming into the charity sector to feel a sense of sense of shared purpose and something that had a good amount of kudos to tell their social group. They are, as you say, they're going to things like new media tech companies because for better or worse, and I think we probably both argue it's worse, a lot of the time now if somebody goes to their friends and said they're working for Facebook, they might get a better response than if they say they're working for one of the leading charities. Yes, there's been a an impact of the negative media that was around some charities some years ago. So I think that put some people off. But it is just, I don't think we sell ourselves as being a sector. It's still often for those people who do know it's a sector you can work in. They often see it as a bit old school and a bit dry to work in. Whereas you see these new media companies where they're in cool offices, people seem to enjoy working there, there's a sense of shared purpose. And a lot of those people I've spoken to who have gone that route, they say, well, my company has some great charity partnerships and I run the marathon and fundraise and they feel that's their way of engaging with the charity sector rather than working. So I think the, the nice thing about positioning the charity sector as a place people want to come and work Yes, you would hope in some ways that it might come down to large organisations like the uh, Chartered Institute of Fundraising or the Charity Commission, although that probably be hoping for too much. But without those organisational bodies to do anything about it, everybody can have an impact. So when I'm working with clients about promoting their roles, it's not just about putting your adverts out on social media. It's also about getting things out on social media and, and other means of, of sort of marketing just about what you're like to work for and maybe some good news stories about about your staff get those things out there so people start seeing a that the charity sector is somewhere that people get paid to work at and b that it is not just one demographic it's not just one age group it is quite diverse although we'll come to diversity in a bit because diversity certainly needs to improve but that it is a place of shared purpose and where people can bring a variety of skills and make a real difference. And the more we all get used to putting those things online, the more people externally who are all within our networks will see that and might start thinking again about targeting the charity sector as a, as a sort of employer of choice. Yeah, as you say, individual organisations, the better they do that job of selling themselves in the broader marketing context and in employment, the better. Yeah. Wouldn't it be fantastic as well, as you say, to see the likes of Institute of Fundraising, but also the other infrastructure and membership bodies, if they could get some funding or some way have a kind of campaign around promoting working in the sector and, and showing all the benefits of doing that for the employee, for the sector, for society. 
that could be really really good really really kind of powerful campaign potentially and it it, it just doesn't seem to be remotely on the agenda unfortunately i don't think and obviously you know there are lots of things for those organizations to address and need to dig at any of those organizations because they're they're campaigning on some really important stuff but uh yeah that would be really good to see because as you say it's it's often one of those difficult things in uh, each individual charity is as its own set of charity projects it needs to deliver in those so a wider kind of yeah. campaign that benefits the sector in general kind of sits outside of their remit so it's those kind of infrastructure type organizations that i think would need to take it forward yeah. but you know would be speaking on behalf of their members so it would absolutely be part of their remit maybe absolutely i mean i'd i'd, I'd love to see something going on in schools because mm. the i mean as i think we all recognize the sector is still hugely white and middle class mm. and there there needs to be a, a huge push around diversity but the problem is is because i come across the diversity side of things massively on the recruitment and retention piece and i'm very passionate about it but however much you remove bias you remove say non-essential criteria all of those things you're still generally putting those roles out to a sector that is by no means as diverse as the country and the beneficiaries it represents but part of that is because when i think about the the sort of first jobbers and that sort of thing i've spoken to in all my time as a recruiter and, and coaching people so many of those have thought about working in the charity sector in the first place when they did something like rag week at university so you think that's already removing a huge number of people from the equation not only people it's not only taking sort of people who go to university but it's taking those universities that have rag week which is which is only a, a small number of them anyway whereas if there could be some outreach work to schools around careers or something like that to just let people know that charities are somewhere that is an employer i think that sort of thing would actually start diversifying the the uh, the demographic and the numbers of people who consider the sector later on when they come to actually move into the world of work and it's having that visibility because i think i, I said earlier about events and community roles being probably the lowest paid relatively fundraising roles and that is a lot to do with the fact to my mind that that's the type of fundraising that people do understand exists when you're outside the sector you don't know what a trust fundraiser is or what they does you might know companies do something but you may not know a corporate fundraiser exists you certainly don't know that a legacy fundraiser exists but we've all seen some kind of sponsored event or a coffee morning or, or something like that so anybody outside sector whether they're transferring later in career or coming to their first job who thinks of going into fundraising the thing they naturally think about is events or community whichever you want to call it and so that means because there is this much larger feed-in of people wanting to go for those roles they've naturally been kept relatively low, lower salaries because organizations could because they had had more choice to go for and i think thinking about this sort of the big re resignation that's happened recently i think that's probably impacted those roles more because they are the slightly lower paid roles they've suffered even more from the fact that as a sector i think we've suffered for from is that like so many other sectors who make a difference so whether that's healthcare teaching 
those sorts of things so often the people who actually work in those sectors aren't the main breadwinner in their household they might be the second breadwinner which means that it is possibly easier for them to do something else or to leave and go for something close at home which is why you see so many nurses leaving the NHS right now you see a lot of teachers leaving the teaching profession because things are so hard and similarly I think when Covid hit redundancies happened organizations were 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 being shrunk a lot of the, the people in the charity sector I've spoken to who I've contacted who I've had contact with for years who I've contacted over the last couple of years it's not that they've moved to another charity it's that they've left the sector entirely and maybe gone into something completely different that's closer to home or they've started up something themselves because they were the second second wage earner in the family so it gave them a little bit more ability to do that but that does mean that we've lost this huge number and huge amount of sort of sector knowledge of people who have just gone and i don't think we're ever going to going to get them back hence we really need to do everything we can to attract people from outside sector i'd like to hear a bit about what charities can do we've talked a bit more about what the problems are and some of the issues and the frustrations there's maybe two things that I'm interested in. One is to hear a bit more about the work that you're doing with charities now that you know you, you work in-house alongside teams and help them to improve these processes. So you can maybe talk us through how that works in practice, what some of the, the nuts and bolts of it involve. And also maybe there's a way of talking more broadly for someone as a charity who is either a recruiting manager or they're in the HR team and they're thinking, yep, yeah, I recognise some of this stuff. We need to be doing some of these things better. What are some of the stuff that they can start to put in place or start to think about what would, or if they called you up, what would be the kind of things that you would be doing with them? Sure. Happily, although I don't know if this does me any favours, very little of what I do is is rocket science. None of what I do is rocket science. It's It's fairly simple steps to just improve a process because yet you can't, Yes, you can always improve the number of applicants you get by doubling the salary for your role, but that's not realistic. But there are a lot of things that you can do to both increase the numbers of people you see and to reduce the likelihood of people dropping out throughout the process, which is a, a huge problem, particularly, again, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to thinking about the best applicants because it's, it's pointless looking at just the numbers of people applying and the numbers ending up in interview. You want to think about the best people in there and attracting them in the first place and then retaining their interest all the way through because it's no good attracting the best person if they don't turn up to interview because you've left it too long. So when I work with clients what I tend to do is go in there do an uh, initial audit where I talk to recruiting managers, human resources team, existing members of staff to find out exactly where they are because everybody is doing some of it right and some everybody is doing some bits amazingly well so you need to work out what's working already, what isn't working so well, and what is it about the organisation that makes it a good place to work in, because that's what you need to be able to sell, sell into the, the, the applicants. So then I take all that information from lots of conversations with people that, as you know full well, I love doing, pick out all the best bits, work out what the issues are, put training together, then train HR and recruiting managers, but I believe in training anybody who wants to be trained, because even if you're not a recruiting manager now, you might be in future. So it's good personal development side of things. And in that training, I, I think 
and I know we've spoken about this before because part of the reason I always recommended you as a consultant is because you're one of the consultants I've met who really went into organizations and not only told them what they needed to do but told them how to do it which I think is sometimes lacking in consultancy I remember being in a lot of organizations where consultants would come in and say wonderful things about what needed to change and then they would leave and everyone sat there scratching their heads about well how do we actually enact this so it's about training people in in how to run a coherent process but it's also about creating templates for job specification adverts because I think what what often puts delays in the process and affects quality is as soon as anyone's staring at a blank sheet of paper whether that's for writing an advert or for writing a job description it's intimidating as hell so a you don't do it with any quality and, and, and you leave it so really I think what what the key things are that I do is firstly it's about reminding people that they have skills in recruitment because everybody has been a candidate everybody's looked at job ads they may well have looked at them that day because we're all getting deluged with with job ads even, even if you're not actively looking you'll still get recruiters as i know so used to be one sending you things on linkedin or you might get pop-ups of, of job sites that you've signed up to we're all consumers of job adverts but people often forget that when they're writing their own so you can think about what it is that makes you want to apply for a role what the things in a in a role title or or a, or a email title that makes you think I'll, I'll read a bit further so in get, start using those that knowledge you actually have and turn it on to your own own adverts you're doing and similarly with job specs the the way i think is best to look at a job spec almost is think last time you started a new job that first time you went out with either a friend or a family member or something like that after you'd started in that job and they said to you how's the new job going think of all the things you told them and then think about how many of those things are in your job specs and it's probably very few so for instance the profile of the line manager is very rarely in a job spec but there's no more important relationship in a role than than with your line manager so i'd love to know who they are and particularly i also i also like to know who they are because it's such a small incestuous sector that I have known people turn up to interview for a role and find that they're sat opposite a person that they left their last but one organization to avoid who's also moved moved roles by now it's quite nice to know that kind of thing before you turn up um so you can really sell sell the role in a way that is meaningful to people so it's all about as i say thinking of an advert what means something to you thinking of a job spec and yes you have to get the nuts and bolts in the job description about what the job does but why not talk about what that means to the organization, what that means to the beneficiary group, how that works, what size is the organization? That's often not very clear from a job spec. And remember that we're not consuming job specs as printed out bits of paper anymore, very rarely. They're ele electronic documents, so you can make them more interactive. So a lot of it is just going in and getting people to really think about expressing what they already know. Most people I speak to in the client I'm working with at the moment you speak to everybody about what makes them stay there and everybody can tell you something about the organization that they love and makes them stay so those things can go into the adverts they can go into the job descriptions and beyond that a lot of the battle is making sure that it is done in such a way that you can turn things around quickly your best candidate is the one who's got the most options so if you leave a huge gap in between your closing date and the interview date you'll lose them and you might not really notice it 
because you might have invited six people and five out of the six turned up, which you may feel is a fairly good hit rate. But if that sixth person was the best person for the role and the person that would have been your dream candidate had you only met them, that's an enormous impact. But if you had turned that round so you closed the role, immediately decided who you wanted to see and were able to see them a week, week and a half later, you're much more likely to keep someone. And again, giving somebody a job offer. I've seen lots of organisations who they have basically decided who they want to offer the job to. But between getting salary signed off and various other things, and maybe someone's away that needs to rubber stamp the final offer, it's left four days before they offer that person. By which time, if that person hasn't already got another job offer from somewhere else, because remember, they're a brilliant candidate, or you certainly think so, then they've spent four days presuming that they've just not been, got, been offered the job and they've just not been told yet. And if you think you've not been offered a job, it's pretty easy to convince yourself that you never wanted it in the first place. So when you do get that job offer through and you, or, you know, when you do offer that candidate the job four days later, don't be surprised when they don't sound like they're jumping in the air and, and delighted with what you've just offered them. Although, as I say, there, there is a lot of detail around improving every part of the process, but so much of it is use what you already know to sell your role and make sure that your timescales are kept tight enough that you can go through the, the bits you need to do, but you don't keep anybody waiting because that is absolutely the, the way you'll, you'll lose the best people. Yeah, um, and we'll, we'll come on to retention, of course, as well, but I just wanted to jump in. There's the detail around the process, and that's a relatively easy thing to get right. But once you think about it, as you say, you, you know, think about selling your organisation, get the process right, do that sort of thing. From that diversity perspective, what are some, if we assume that the majority of organisations probably aren't doing brilliantly on that front at the moment, what are some of the things that people can change if you think if, if people are doing the same sort of stuff they were doing 10 years ago and it, it's just going to be not inclusive at all? What, what are some of the key things that you're, you're telling people they need to do? With diversity, as I say, it's a big job and the sector as a whole needs to change and there's more than can be done by one organisation, but every organisation needs to be as good as it can be on the diversity side of things. So some of the very obvious things you can do is, as I say, the essential criteria, removing those because as soon as you get things like degree, those sorts of things in there, you're limiting your diversity. When you think about the job itself, being as flexible as possible will not only improve your diversity because it will open the role up to people who are more geographically disparate, who might have caring responsibilities, all the obvious things that more flexibility brings in. So it's great for diversity. It's also great just for attracting people to your role. And you will know that flexibility has been a, a passion of mine since long before COVID hit. And I'm very pleased that one of the one of the good things about COVID is that it has really put in this sort of cultural flexibility a lot more. However, I still speak to a lot of organisations who will tell me gleefully, oh, we're very flexible. We let people work at home one day a fortnight. It's really about <laughs> giving as much flexibility as you can. As I've always said, flexibility is an enormous benefit all around, particularly for productivity, because it forces your managers to manage people based on outputs rather than presenteeism. And we have all seen those people over the years who sit at their desk all day long saying how busy they are, but don't actually achieve very much. 
And it's been easy for that person to get away with it because the manager can look around the office, see who looks like they're beavering away and let it carry on. But when people are working remotely, at least for the majority of the time, that manager has nothing else to measure that person on really other than what they're actually outputting. So it not only allows you to find those people who aren't doing the job more easily and maybe deal with it, it also really benefits you in retaining the good people because lots of people I've had come to me as a recruiter who said they wanted to leave their job despite the fact they loved the calls, the salary was okay, they liked the line manager. A really common reason I heard was that, well, I've got a colleague who's the same level as me. I'm doing all this work, I've doubled my target, all those kind of things, and they're not pulling their weight, they're way below target, but both of us have just had the cost of living increase and I don't seem to get any recognition. That was a really common story. But if you're actually able to measure people in a more coherent way, that helps everyone. And it also giving that trust to your staff will mean you get more out of them. It just does. It won't do with the with the awful staff, but then that's a different issue. That's about you performance managing the bad staff out. The problem is, is that on the flexibility side of things, there's still a lot of organizations who want to go very flexible but they're being stymied by their boards of trustees and i wasn't going to come on to this quite so soon but in terms of diversity so many of the issues we have as a sector are almost not pointless to deal with because as i say you need to be as good as you can but until we have more diverse boards of trustees we're always going to be fighting a bit of a losing battle because it's still so many of the organizations i come across might have a diverse staff team hopefully but the board of trustees so many of them are still white retired ex-businessmen and if you don't have diversity on your board that will impact your organization negatively in so so many ways and will often be what stops an organization being able to do remote working effectively because if your board who make the final decisions are from a generation who just simply didn't have the ability to do that then it may stop them agreeing that i'm not saying everyone because lots of people who are of that different generation are very behind remote working but it's not necessarily going to help and when i'm coaching individuals and if i can have anyone take away anything from from today it's whatever level you work at in an organization there's an organization out there who would welcome you as a trustee so, so many people, because they see a board of trustees as being white retired businessmen, they think, well, I'm not of that demographic, so I can't be a trustee. Whereas actually, if you think so many charities have a board made up of nobody who's actually ever worked in a charity themselves, as I'm not saying all by any means, there's some amazing boards out there. But when you've got a lot, a lot of charities led by people who've never worked in a charity, that's obviously a huge lack of knowledge on that board so yeah <laughs> so anybody and i've seen people who are a year into their first charity job go and be a trustee of an organization and make an enormous impact because they've got that knowledge and also if they're a different a different age different demographic in any way and if there's, if there's one thing I could change about the sector, it would be that diversity of trustee boards, because I genuinely think all of the issues with, with diversity, remote working, geographically diverse staffing, all those things 
are always going to be hindered by non-diverse boards. So if everyone who listened to this podcast could think about exploring being a trustee, and it doesn't need you to look for adverts for trustees because they're few and far between. It's often the larger charities who are maybe looking for somebody specifically with very high-end accountancy experience or something like that. But a lot of small to medium charities who might be local to you, if you just contact them and say, this is my background, I'm interested in a, in a board level position, you might just find that there's, there's one near to you that would absolutely welcome your skill set and it can make a massive difference. Yes, it'll also be great for you career-wise because getting that, that, that experience is really good career-wise. I would never say that's the reason to do it, but it's a lovely extra reason to do it. And I think for that happen and so many more people joined, I think that would impact the sector more than anything. Let's talk about the retention side of things. What what sort of advice would you give to organisations that, that want to retain the people they have? One of the first things I would say is believe in retention because I, I speak to so many senior managers who think that they won't keep people longer than two years maximum. It's become almost a truism in the sector that people move around a lot, that managers now see it as a fait accompli and that there's no point in trying to keep people longer because they know people move on. And that simply isn't true. Yes, some people do move on quickly, but that's certainly not always the case in organisations that do manage to, to retain people. So managers need to start not thinking in a way that's just inevitable that people move on. So that's sort of the first first thing I'd, I'd generally say. And also the money side of things is always a key part. So it's not as much of an impact on retention as you would think from people's exit interviews, because most of the people I had coming to me saying they're looking for a job, I know most of them said the reason they were leaving their job was because of needing more salary or needing a promotion but actually from talking to them when they weren't in an exit interview, when they were worried about what their reference was going to say, it might come down to just not feeling appreciated, not feeling connected to the cause, all of those sorts of things. So to cover the salary salary side of things first, yes, salary is obviously an issue. And if somebody is doing incredibly well at their role, do think about rewarding them, particularly if you're an organisation that says you can't increase someone's salary, but then when they do ultimately leave, you end up spending thousands on a recruiter to replace them. Or once you benchmark their role against the rest of the sector, you suddenly realise you've been underpaying and increase the salary for that role anyway, because A, that person who's left is going to see that and will definitely not be a good ambassador for you as an employer for the, for the rest of their time. But also you're losing all of that accrued knowledge they have. You're giving their team more work to do while that, that role's empty because you never manage to recruit a new member of staff so quickly that there's there's not a gap in between. So don't just always think we're a charity, we can't increase salaries. Because if someone is doing well and you might end up spending out more than you would increase their salary anyway, think about including that. Yes, there's always issues with, with salary scales and everything else, but they can often be worked through. Beyond that, though, one of the main things to do is engage with people as individuals. It's not just about needing to promote that person because the, with the best will in the world a lot of organizations aren't large enough that they have huge amounts of hierarchy many levels where people can just keep moving up and up the ladder so engage with your staff talk to them about what they want to do career-wise 
and try and be a part of that rather than just seeing that that's something they do elsewhere. So if they do want to, to move into a more senior role, accept it, but maybe work out how you can help them get some more knowledge in-house for them to be able to do that later. Because if you do that, yes, they're still going to leave at some point, but you might keep them for another six months or a year. And if you keep all of your staff for an extra six months or a year across your whole organization, that's enormous and a huge saving for you. So engage with them, use supervisions to actually engage with your staff and find out what's important to them. And within that, you may find that to a lot of your staff, it's not about getting a promotion. It might just be about having more flexibility. It might be about going part-time. There's so many things that often only get talked about when a person hands in their resignation. And maybe you end up offering them what they want when they resign because you're suddenly panicking and realizing you're going to lose them anyway. So then now you've got to find out exactly what you can do to keep them. But if you have that conversation when somebody's resigned, they've already left in their head. So the likelihood of them actually agreeing to that is A, much lower. And even if they do decide to stay, the likelihood of them still leaving within the following six months is much higher as well. There's nothing to stop you having those conversations with people earlier on. It's not, I think a lot of organizations are worried about having conversations with people about what their needs are because they think if they find that out and they don't act on it, it's going to make the situation worse. It doesn't. Yeah. And you mentioned before a lot of the work that you do is essentially about training the internal staff because it sounds like a lot of this is about the culture and about managers understanding how to think about the people they're managing and, and their aspirations and that kind of thing are there is there a, a process side to it as well where that's kind of putting some of this into the kind of appraisal system or is it very much a culture kind of issue most of it's culture because i think people have to know that it it is across the board for the organization because i think almost if you if people think it's just for them then they don't feel so comfortable about it but the process comes down to embedding it into supervisions and into, I mean, this might seem an odd thing to say, but it's things into the process of when somebody does resign. So when you have a member of staff resign, if you haven't trained your managers in how to deal with that, it's often quite a painful process on both sides. It's embarrassing all round and clunky. And then some managers, once a person has handed in their resignation, Will almost decide that person is dead to them until they finally leave which can be like two or three months away <laughs> well yeah and a then of course you don't get anything useful out of that person for those for that time period because they don't feel valued anymore but what what these managers often forget is that how you're treating that person is how they know you're going to treat them when they resign which only has the effect of making them want to resign sooner because it, it colours how they how they view your value of them. So it's embedding it into processes like, like when somebody resigns. And culturally, it's about recognising good work when it happens. It's about putting things out there about your, your staff who are doing good work. And I think one of the key things to me in terms of retention is a lot of the people I saw who were leaving their jobs it was often because they didn't feel that connected to the cause. And I think it is a painful irony that very often you have people internally who have the word retention 
in their job description, it's just about supporters. And there's a lot of skills there you could turn inward to your staff. And it's often those people who have retention of supporters in their job descriptions who are incredibly skilled at telling your supporters how their 10 pounds a month, whatever they give, makes an impact on the beneficiaries. But very often charities are terrible at telling their own staff how their work impacts on the beneficiaries. So make sure that you, you tell your staff how their 35 hours a week makes a difference. Remind them that it's not just about, for a trust fundraiser say, because I know it's your background and I, I've had a lot to do with that as well. It's not just about that day you get a check-in that you celebrate, it's every day you're working is working towards those checks coming in and those checks do have an impact on the beneficiaries. And it, it's, it's important for every charity worker. It's even more important for those organizations who are maybe a step to rem remove. So maybe an umbrella organization for other, for other charities, international organizations, sometimes because their staff are geographically removed from their, from their area they work in. But the skills are all there in house, as I say, because you're telling your supporters, you just need to do that with your staff as well. And if you connect your staff to the cause, you will keep them for longer. Yeah, another thing I think where charities are missing a trick is after staff leave, you work for that organisation, you know it inside out and certainly in fundraising, really passionate about promoting that cause and you believe in it and then you leave and you never hear from them ever again. You might stay in touch with people that you've made friends yeah. with, but <laughs> there could be these amazing alumni programmes of people that stay in touch and promote the work, yeah. donate to the cause and so on. You yeah. don't know of any literally don't know of any and it's it's not an original idea i've heard a, a few people mention this it's come up a couple of times but yeah it just seems like a big kind of missed opportunity and something i think you know obviously if you leave mm. because you're not happy there then fine you opt out of it but i think a lot of people they've got fond memories of the causes they've worked at but there's just no kind of ongoing connection no you're absolutely right and in a in a relatively small sector as we are the impact can be huge. If you have a bunch of people out there who are your ambassadors, they will point people who are good to come work for you. They will point their network to give to you in future. And the flip side of that is if you do it badly, they will be telling people not to come and work for you. I mean, the, the I think charities often miss the fact that the size of the sector means that if you get a bad reputation as an employer, it has an enormous impact. I remember I've, I've certainly, these will remain nameless, but I've worked with charities in the past who, when you got in touch with people about a job at that organization, there was one where I phoned up a number of people I knew, I hadn't worked for this charity before, and every person I spoke to, when I told them the organization, they said, oh, does X still work there? And when I said yes, they said, no, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will when we're off air. But I'm sure there's been more than one over the years. I, I, I wish it had only been one or two. There, has oh, yeah, been, yeah. there have been many, but but those, yeah, those reputations they spread so quickly, and you just won't recruit the good people of that. You you can still recruit people, but they won't be the best people because they will avoid you, avoid you like the plague. I know we've already run over time. So last question, spoken mostly from uh, employers perspective for employees for people working in the sector what sort of career advice might you give to them or development advice maybe i think the main thing is as well as not feeling you have to move constantly because there is this because it is a truism in the sector i've had lots of 
employees say to me, oh, well, I love my job. I love my team. I'm learning loads. Love the cause. But I've been in my role for a year and a half. Does it look bad if I stay for longer? Certainly that's not true. If you're developing, if you're growing, absolutely stay in your role so many times. Have people actually said that after a year and a half? I know. But it, it's become particularly in London that's fundraising social. roles. People social. just thought that was that was a thing now because it did happen so often. But no, if you're if you're getting a lot out of your role, a career is long. So there's time to to stay in a role and enjoy it and do well in it and really learn how to do it very well. The other thing which I would always encourage people to do is don't just wait for development to come to you. I think the the really good thing about this sector is you can sort of make your own luck and your own development. So if there are different sorts of skills you want to bring in, or maybe you're a fundraiser who wants to try out another income stream, or you're, you work in policy and you really want to try something with service delivery, unless you're an enormously limiting or huge organisation, then even if you're in a siloed organisation, you can start working to de-silo. So you can talk to people in those other teams and ask them if you can start doing a bit of work with them or sitting in on their meetings or something like that, and maybe they can do the same to you. It's very rare that you will not be allowed to do that if you start putting it into place yourself. And yes, that will develop you as, a, as an individual and make you understand the wider organisation more, which will make you better at the job you're doing anyway. But anything you're doing to break down those silos will benefit the, the organisation itself widely. And I've known people do that in the most junior roles have started to do that. And it started other people in other departments doing it with each other. And it's, and it's really started to de-silo an entire organisation, even though the person who started that was the, the most junior person in the organisation. So just think about what you want and start trying to put things into place to get it. And as I say, it doesn't need to just be in your own organisation. You can contact people in other organisations who are either a level or two above you to ask them for advice or to, or to mentor you, or peers in other organisations who you can just phone up to have a chat about what you're up to, what you're doing, and share both advice and knowledge and to have a sounding board for being able to moan about your job at the time because we all need to have that and sometimes you don't have that internally if particularly in a small organization where there's only maybe one of you doing each role then having those people externally that you can chat to who are knowledgeable but you can have a bit of a moan to as well can make an enormous difference thank you paul it's been uh it's been great i could chat to you all afternoon about this but i know you'll have other things to get on to if if people want to get in touch and find out about how you can help them with recruitment and retention or with individual coaching what what's the best way to reach you uh, best way at the moment so as we're recording this my website is just being built so the website is recruitandretain.co.uk but if anyone wants to get hold of me they can just email me at paul at recruitandretain.co.uk but yeah thanks it's been great to speak to you and likewise i could talk to you for a lot longer on this and that's been a real pleasure no problem we'll uh, maybe do another we'll do a part two at some point so that people don't get intimidated by the three hour episode length was there anything you wanted to add before we go no i think i'm good thanks
all right awesome well once this is up on the website put some notes and links and stuff and i'll let you know so thank you and you can find paul through the email address also on twitter at paul consulting or on linkedin and you can find any of the information about the episode on our website on kedaconsulting.co.uk Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast and thank you for making it all the way to the end. Just one more thing before you go. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow us and leave a rating on Apple, Spotify or whatever platform you're using. It just takes a few seconds and means a lot to me so that I know there are people listening and enjoying the podcast and it's worth investing time in producing more of these episodes. If you'd like to share your feedback, comments, or have any questions on this episode in particular, please do post on Twitter, making sure you include me. That's at AlexBlake underscore Keda, K-E-D-A. Or on LinkedIn, it would be at AlexBlake with a space between the first and second name. And that should tag me so I get a notification and I can read and respond to any comments and feedback you have. I'd love to hear from you, if nothing else, to reassure me that someone's listening and any specific feedback will be a huge help with positive spurring me on to do more episodes for you and the constructive criticism will help me improve. So please don't be shy about sharing your thoughts, advice and tips. Um, it would really, really be appreciated. The Charity Impact Podcast is brought to you by Kida Consulting, the company I started in 2013 to help charities maximise their impact. I work with charities and other non-profits to develop their strategies, explore solutions to the challenges they face, increase and diversify their income, develop partnerships, review performance, undertake research and more. And really the podcast is an extension of that. The consulting work is a one-to-one -one initiative and the podcast enables me to just reach more people and, and share some of the lessons learned from people doing great work in our sector. If you'd like to find out more about us and access all of the episodes on the podcast, the website is kedaconsulting.co.uk. You can also there sign up for our emails to ensure you're the first to know about future episodes, articles, live events, and anything else that might be happening. So thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Until next time, take care.